Welcome to the Suicide Prevention Show. We are waking up the world. And part of it is about the power of positivity, but part of it is about the power of the unseen. What you don't know that could actually help you. And so what I didn't know on this topic, I learned from this TEDx speaker. So please help me welcome David Woody Barkley. David, please join me in the studio. There you are. Jackie, how are you? And and uh, it's great to be part of the Jackie and Katie show. I'm very, very excited. And then come to find out that your beloved daughter lives in Maryland where I grew up. So I feel a great affinity for your beloved uh, daughter. Uh, well, there you go. Cool. Yeah, I raised my kids in Maryland. So she's the one who stayed. <laughs> So it's a great place to grow up. I lived I lived in Silver Spring for until I was in my uh, mid twenties. Well, there you go. So where do you live now? So about thirty minutes east of Sacramento in Northern California. There we go, Northern California. It's a far cry from Maryland. It, it is, and I don't know if you're in Ocean City. There's a sign um, it, that has uh, at the end of the Highway 50 that says Sacramento, California, three thousand some odd miles. <laughs> And there's a there is a sister sign because they're considered sister cities in Sacramento that says Ocean City, Maryland, the same number of miles that way. So just get on Highway 50 and keep going west or east and you'll end up in either place. Oh, isn't that interesting? I did not know that piece of uh, trivia. There you go. And I can only imagine that Sacramento was subliminally planted into your brain by a visit to Ocean City. There, indeed, 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 yeah, and I have many, many, many great memories of Ocean City, so anyway, so thank you so much for allowing me to be on the show. Katie, thank you for your um, technological brilliance, getting me ready to get to this point to be with mom. Yeah, Katie is amazing with that, so um, for everybody, she not only handles tech, she's one of my speaker liaisons, and so between Katie and Jan, they make sure that everybody has what they need, and I am so grateful because I could not do this alone. Ah, David, the why and the how. So this journey for you, I mean, we got introduced by uh, Frank and he's like, yeah, we, you, Jackie, you need to talk to, yeah. So we, we got introduced because you're a TEDx speaker and I'm a TEDx speaker. And we were both talking on the topic of suicide from two very different perspectives. Mm. And so your TEDx talk, what's the title of it? So that TEDx talk is How Connection Saved My Life. So How Connection Saved My Life. And, and by the way, it's a really good talk. Thank I you. enjoyed watching it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The shift that has to happen, in my opinion, is making the conversation about suicide be something that is normal. Just to, I mean, they say normalize the conversation. I just want it to be an everyday conversation, which is why I stopped calling it a conversation. So saying it's a talk, you know, just talk about it. You don't have to have a conversation, just talk about it. And nobody would. And for a year, I beat that drum. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up creating a script to make it easy for people to have the talk about suicide, specifically with their teenagers. But I didn't delve into where you went, which was about the why and then about the how. So take us on this journey. When did you decide that the why of suicide needed to be shared? So I think, so I was going to end my life almost exactly 10 years ago on August 31st of 2011. And I was going to jump off what is known as the Forest Hill Bridge, which is about two hours east of its more famous cousin in San Francisco. And it stands 500 feet further off the ground at 730 feet. And I'm, my life was saved by a first responder who interestingly leveraged curiosity to create this fertile ground, this solid ground of understanding ultimately got me away from the rail, from the edge, and began this journey, as I like to say, from mental hellness to mental wellness. Mm. And to the experience of what I believe, Jackie, I know I, I am preaching to the choir that mental health is not some privilege of the rich and the famous, that every sentient being that comes into this life experience, we have the right 
to be mentally well. And in all the talks that I've done, people will come up, I'm sure just like you, and, and there'll be more than a handful who unfortunately has lost a soul to suicide. And they want to know the answer to the question, why? Mm-hmm. And so I began to think about that and to, even though my life was saved, and I say because it, thankfully I did not end my life by suicide, I didn't complete suicide. I wanted to try to give an answer to the question of why. Because I, it is, while I can intellectually understand it, I can't imagine at the emotional level the, the trauma and the heartache when someone loses a soul to suicide. And the first thing that I, I say is suicide is maybe one of the most illogical things of all time. That if you're looking to answer the question of why, the first thing you have to do is to put logic on the sideline. Because when you're depressed, you become convinced that everything you think is true. And I'll say that again, that when you're depressed, you become convinced that everything you think is true. It's not based on logic, because we've all had, and I know, Jackie, you're, un, you're no different than I, that you've had these bizarre thoughts that come in and think, my gosh, where did that come? And then we can excuse them. But imagine in the acute state of depression, of mental illness, of grief, of loss, whatever that is, that you become convinced that every single one of those thoughts that you have, every single one, especially the ones about self-hatred and self-condemnation, about a lack of self-worth and, and anything of that nature, you become convinced that they are true. Yeah. So it's a non-logical situation. And so if we approach it, the first thing I say to people is you have to put logic to the side because you're dealing with somebody who is believing a horrific lie. So that's the first step that in wanting to answer this question of why. Got it. So the first step is to accept that logic doesn't apply. Exactly. It's not a logical why. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, sometimes people are a little taken aback by that because it almost sounds like I'm being disrespectful to the person who's in that acute situation, but I'm actually trying to allow them to manage their expectations because I, I love the, and I don't know who said this, but I, I think about it in my own life, that the definition of an upset is an unfulfilled expectation. So we encounter somebody who is doing something that makes no sense to us. And we have an expectation that if I, especially in regards to mental illness and suicide, if I just convince them that yes, indeed, they're worthy, that I, if I could just uh, remind them that life is worth living, if I can just do these other things and I'm saying that the intent is good, I understand that, but you're trying to apply logic to a completely illogical scenario. So I'm just saying, take off the logical hat. And that's going to be the first step to enter into a place of commonality with the soul who is suffering. It's a great analogy, great way to explain that. I mean, I use my shortcuts from a different perspective and, and mm. like, why does anybody do anything? Because in that moment, it seems like the best idea at the time. It was so well said. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so if I accept that this is what seems like a good idea to them, in effect, I'm taking off my logic hat. Right. Yeah. So I love that because that I can visualize really easily. This is a powerful place to be when you can take off your logic hat. What do you do then? Then it is this leveraging of curiosity to arrive at that beautiful place of understanding. And so I'll tell you a couple of stories. So before, while, when I was in the place of, of wanting to kill myself, I was married to an amazing woman named Deanna. We ran a very large, very extraordinary animal sanctuary that was home to as many as 100 animals at any one time. 25 horses, 23 dogs, nine potbelly pigs, like little you know, land-bound Noah's Ark. And we took in animals that were old, that were sick, that had some sort of special need, or the vast majority were at the end of life. And so we did no adoptions. So we encounter somebody, and I'll, I'll, let me say it this way, that each and every one of us has acted in a way that makes no sense to anybody else. And I'm not talking about the extreme. Yeah. And people are, they're confused. They may say a whole different things, a variety of things. It, it, they don't understand 
But the truth is, if we look at those situations in which we've acted in a way that makes no sense, the truth is there's always a story. Something's going on behind the scenes invisibly that people don't understand. So I'll tell you a quick story that really illustrates this point. So we, we had this beautiful pond in the back pasture. And so we had waterfowl. And one day we got a new goose named Adia, A-D-I-A. And I bring Adia back to the pasture. And he was unusual, Jackie, because he allowed me to hold him. So at the time we had Mercy and Grace, who were beautiful, what they call Chinese geese. They were beautifully white. And we had a duck named Dave who thought he was a goose. So I go back to the pond. There's Ricky, I'm sorry, Mercy, Grace, and Dave. They're swimming. And I put Adia down on the edge of this utopia of what had been created for him. But instead of moving into that space, instead of going that which was ideal for him, he jumped on into this small bathtub-sized water trough, which was right on the edge of the pond for the other animals to drink out. And I remember thinking, like, why would you do that? That makes no sense. You know, we can bring people to the edge of all these resources in regards to mental health, but sometimes they will jump back into the familiar surroundings of their suffering. So I thought, well, maybe he's stressed. I don't know. Take him out of the bathtub size water trough, put him back on the edge, and he looks out, Mercy, Grace, and Dave turns around, looks at me, and jumps back in the water trough. So we do this, Jackie, 10 times. Now, wow. I have, in my own unevolved male way, I move from being curious to being slightly annoyed to being frustrated all the way to anger. Like, no, dude, what is the program? What is the deal? Now, Deanna came along, and bless her heart, and we're, we're not married, but we're still great friends, and she looked at the situation and said, honey, maybe there's something we don't know about Adia. And I'm like, sweetheart, I don't need to read his bio to understand that he is causing me a major problem. I'm frustrated. I don't understand him. So D goes, makes a couple calls to the rescue organization who brought him there and comes back and said, well, honey, guess what I found out? Adia, up to this point, had lived his entire life in the small confines of somebody's small backyard. Not only had Adia never seen a pond, he had only ever swum Jackie in a very small little kiddie pool. And in that moment, you think, well, of course he was in a, in a bathtub-sized water trough. He couldn't comprehend. And people who have a, they balk at counseling and medication and everything else, there's always a story. But here's the amazing thing about understanding is in that moment, the thought, the solution to the problem immediately came to me. And I thought, dude, I can just get a second water trough. So Adia can have his space and the animals can have him. But that solution, that understanding is not available to me until I use curiosity like Adia came. And it's the same thing applies to somebody like me standing on an edge. And it was a first responder who, after the establishment of contact and logistics, use curiosity when Jackie, the first question thereafter to me was, David, what does it feel like to be depressed? And in that moment, everything slowed way down. And it's that's where you use the second step, long-winded, and forgive me, we use curiosity to come to a place where we can understand. Doesn't mean we have to agree with a person. Doesn't mean we have to condone the action, but we understand them and things can change. In this case, my life was saved by a series of questions that ultimately got me away from that rail. That's a really powerful point. What does it feel like to be depressed? Certainly not the first question that would come to my mind. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. So, ah, so, so kudos to him to have that level of curiosity in what, from his perspective as a first responder, he's trained to, you know, save a life. Right. But he didn't try to just grab you and secure you. And yeah. Yeah. And then he followed up, Jackie, the questions were amazing. He, he then said, David, how long have you lived with this, or this set of conditions? And then the most amazing question Jackie was, and this is so counterintuitive, like you would never think to ask this question. He looked at me and he said, David, what's it like on your worst days? And then he did this thing. I'm sure you've read her book, Kitchen Table Wisdom by Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen. No, uh, I haven't read it's that, going to. <laughs> so Dr. Remen has this great quote, and this is what this soul did for me. He would ask a question and then he would listen. And Dr. Remen says this about listening. 
says that our listening creates a sanctuary for the homeless parts within other people. So on that day, I had a physical place to live, but I was spiritually homeless. I was mentally homeless. I was psychologically homeless. And the, the, the listening of this man created a sanctuary for me. And so we continued on these questions and then he pivoted on what I say on a half a mustard seed side of not of faith, but of hope. And he said, David, what's it like on your best days? And then the last question was, David, what do you want the rest of your life to look like? And it was that point I looked up and I take in, if you, if you Google the Forest Hill Bridge, the view is spectacular. And I had that little teeny, teeny, almost imperceptible amount of hope. And that's all it takes to pause the suicidal ideation, to reconsider for a moment. And I push back and then turn to my left and retrace my steps. And here was the exclamation point at the end of that whole experience, Jackie. It was a middle-aged man to middle-aged man. And there wasn't this bravado, macho exchange of way to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This extraordinary soul turned to me and said, thank you for telling me how you feel. And it's just like, wow, it's just amazing. It's just this surgical use of curiosity to save a life. That really is an amazing story. And thank you for sharing it. And David, I know that you've delivered more than one TEDx talk. I know, if I remember correctly, could I be, yeah, I hope. There's a, there's a second one coming. Um, ah, okay. That is how to save a life by sitting down. How to and save that, a life by sitting down. Okay. Yeah, that'll be in October. Cool. All right, so we've got the the understanding of why. The why of suicide is that someone is in an illogical place. Correct. And they are well said, perfectly so. Okay. So they're in an illogical place, believing their worst thoughts about themselves and their life. That's like the most amazingly succinct version of what's happening in the moment. They believe their worst thoughts. And so the how of hope is curiosity. Well, it's, if I may, it's actually, curiosity is one component of, of connection. Mm-hmm. So I believe my takeaway is that connection creates hope and hope saves lives. And I think there are three principal ways to create connection that, that any of us can use. And in fact, in all humility, what I would say is that the dilemma of mental illness and even suicide is incredibly complex, but I really do believe that the solution is simple. And it is the, if we all become masters of creating connection everywhere, anywhere. And, and here's just some, some support to that. So there's a great psychiatrist, Dr. Drew Ramsey. And here's what Dr. Ramsey says, and these are his words. Someone you see today is thinking about killing themselves. Your smile, your question, your love could save them. Trust me, they told me it did. So what the great doctor is saying that your connection in whatever method that you choose, and I teach three, is what keeps people safe. Because the truth is sometimes, if not most of the time, what hurts the most can't be seen. So there are people all around us who are suffering. And, and it's not just this aspect of mental illness and its evil twin of suicide. The other pandemic that is going on that is getting almost no play is the pandemic of grief. And unprocessed grief will ultimately result in mental illness and can put a soul into the place of suicide. So I teach recognition, understanding, and expression. I teach people how to become masters at the art of remembering people's names, because we all know what it's like when somebody remembers our name and we had no expectation that they would. And I teach people how to use curiosity to arrive at understanding. And I teach people, remind them to leverage expression, to let people know how you feel about them in particular, leveraging the extraordinary timeless power of a handwritten note, because it is just unbelievable and i have two that i talk about that are i mean you could offer me a million dollars for each and i wouldn't give you i wouldn't give you the money 
So or you wouldn't, I wouldn't give you the notes. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, you're right. That that would be uh, a better way to say that. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the first one. Okay, because we, we jumped kind of into the middle, but let's start with the first one. I love how you expressed it. So unpack it for us a little bit. In terms of on, on recognition? Mm-hmm. So, yes. you know, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And then there's the Dale Carnegie course. And one of the things that he was all about names and his great quote that he says to a person, the sound of that person's name is the sweetest sound in any language. And we know that we've all had the experience at least once where somebody has remembered our name and we had no expectation that they would. And it just, I mean, Jackie, you've had that, correct? You know, it, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because people mess up my name all the time. And with a name as simple as Jackie, <laughs> you wouldn't think it would be a problem. And for many years, I got irritated when people called me Jack. And you know, it, it, was I understand. it irritated me. And, and it's just, you know, it's just a shortcut. It's just, you know, a nickname is just laziness. And, and I had a few other adjectives that I could describe it with. Right. Know, a few other nouns with some adjectives attached to them. The, the truth is that, yeah, we like to be recognized by how we want to be addressed. So not just the formal name, but, but how we want to be known. No, exactly. And I, so I teach a, a method. It's P-A-R-A. So it's par and then an A. So imagine if you're out playing golf and every time you got a par, you were graded an A. So it's pause, slow down, stop. You're not going to remember if you just don't stop. And then the other is, is of course, A is ask. And I, I'm, I'm in, I use, so tell me, even if it's, even if it's seemingly obvious, how do you spell it? And then, you know, do you have a nickname? And then I asked people, Jackie said, do you like your name? Which seems like it catches people off guards, but one out of every 10 will say, you know what? I really don't. And then you, you repeat it just to make sure, especially if it's an interesting ethnic name. And then you create an association, but here's the best way. And I have so much fun with this and I I will use it. I will use you is in, in the asking part, I will ask, what's the story behind your name? So do you have a story behind your name? My full legal name is Katrina Jackal Simmons. Interesting. And I've always been Jackie. And the story behind my name is that I was nicknamed after my dad's commanding officer at the time, Jumpin' Jack Carter. There we go. I love that. So there was a story behind my name. And so I think what that does is it's a couple of things. One, it gives people an opportunity to talk about themselves, which in our human day-to-day experiences doesn't happen a whole lot. But it also now, I will never forget your name because I'm going to think <laughs> of, of the story. And here's the best reply that I've ever gotten to the question. So I was giving a talk in Boston before COVID and I was at the inbound conference. And so I was a breakout speaker in one of the small rooms. And there was this young woman sitting in the front row before the speech. And of course, no one sits in the front row. And I went up and I said, thank you so much for sitting in the front row. What's your name? And she said, my name is Hope. And I'm like, oh my good, I love that name. What's the story behind your name? And she says, I don't know. And I said, you don't know why your parents gave you that beautiful name? She says, no, I have no idea. So I give my talk and then I went to what they call the spotlight stage, which is where the big speakers were. And this on this day, I was going to listen to the great Brian Stevenson. And there were like 30,000 people in this enormous room. And I was getting ready. I was kind of eyeing this seat, Jackie, where I wanted to see. And all of a sudden, someone taps me on the shoulder and I turn around and it's hope. And I'm like, how in the heck did you find me? She says, oh my God, I'm so excited that, that I did. And she puts her phone to me and she had texted her mom and said, why did you and dad name me Hope? And her mother texted back because your father and I knew that's what you would bring to the world. And so in that moment, for the first time in her life, she knew why she was called. And I love to think, Jackie, the next time that Hope introduced herself to somebody, now that she knew that story, like, what did that feel like? 
And so I think it's just, it's a fun, you can use it anytime. 99% of the time there's a story. Sometimes there'll be that 1% that says, you know, I have no idea. And then there's going to be 1% of people say, I don't like my name. And I say, okay, what would you like to be called? And most often those people are like, boom, I want to be called Samantha. Like, okay, why? And they tell you that story. So that's the first step is to use recognition to create connection. And the second is, is we talked about this whole aspect of leveraging curiosity to create understanding. And my belief is the most direct path we can take to overcoming our fears around mental illness, yours, mine, and everybody, is to leverage the power of curiosity to create understanding. Because the truth is, the opposite of fear isn't calm. The opposite of fear is understanding. The more we understand, the less we fear. It takes fear away. And so we look at somebody doing something, we look at some soul bent over the rail, ready to kill himself. What's the story? What's going on? I can't just immediately react. I can't approach it from a logical standpoint because the act is illogical. What got that soul to the point is illogical. The beliefs about his or herself are illogical. They're not based in reality, but they're real for them. So we have to approach it. And the way to untangle those erroneous thoughts is leveraging curiosity. And there's a great quote, Krista Tripp in her magnificent TED Talk, defines compassion as curiosity without assumption. So it's Ooh. like, isn't that amazing? That's a great TED Talk. Krista does an amazing job. So, so you think really one of the best ways we can be compassionate is, or let me say it this way, one of the best ways I think we can serve our brothers and sisters, and I believe we are each other's keepers. doesn't mean we have to live together, but to be... <laughs> Amen. Is to be compassionate, to approach a situation with curiosity, without assumption. Let me come upon this scene as best I'm able to with a blank slate, blank slate listening. Wow. Curiosity without assumption is, is such an amazing, amazing place because I can go from zero to assumption, you know, all right, so I'm going to need for you to unpack. Yeah, that's another great quote, Katie. You're right. So I'm going to need to unpack this a little bit. What do I need to do to get from assumption to being able to be curious without assumption? How do I come out of my assumption-making machine? Because I'm a, you know, this is a human thing. We have to judge things. Yeah, that's how we stay alive. So how do we get out of it? So I think the first thing is to acknowledge that that's just who we are. As, and I think, cause for me, I mean, seriously, you know, there is this thing called implicit bias. We all have it. So I think the, the, the challenge is if I don't accept that less than attractive aspect about myself, sure. you know, what I resist persists. So just say, you know what? And it really kind of goes back full circle, Jack, to what we're talking about. Let's just normalize the condition. We all make assumptions. And I really think it's the analogy I use is it says space abhors a vacuum. I think our minds are the same way. In the absence of data, be it right or wrong, we're going to put some info in there. We are going to fill it in and we are going to do it with a story because we can make up stories in an instant. I bet I can beat you to the point of assumption, dear soul. Uh, I think first it is, this, we have to accept it. There's this, there's this thing called the ladder of inference. So if you can imagine a ladder mm-hmm. and at the bottom of the ladder, the, the lowest step is here's what happens in life. And so then we you go up one rung on the ladder and this is how we view life. Like this is our view. And then we continue to move up the ladder without any input, drawing conclusions and basing assumptions just based on our history and everything else. And then what happens is, you know, on a ladder, the the step right before the top, there's a little sticker on that step. What does it say? Yeah, don't go above this line. Right. So if you jump up the ladder of inference from looking at an event or a condition, Mm -hmm. and you make assumptions and conclusions and interpretations based on no other input but your own experience, you're going to stand on a very wobbly spot. So, but it all begins by acknowledging what's going on. We have to accept we have implicit bias. We have to accept we are assumption making machines. That's the first step. Because if we don't, we're going to pretend like, oh yeah, you know, uh, it's 
I think it's the acceptance of our imperfection, but also, and you said it so beautifully, to realize that there is a powerful component, a life-saving component in the, in the deduction of a situation sometimes that we have to make in an instant. So it's not all bad. It's, it's not all bad. And it is, we have a natural negative bias. This was one of the things that I discovered through this journey for myself is that our brains are naturally hardwired towards a negative bias. We had to, as cavemen, be able to discern friend or foe at a safe enough distance. And it was safer to assume foe. Exactly. And we had exactly. to remember your know, purple plant. Last time I ate it, I got sick. So I'm not going to eat the purple plant. Yeah. Right. So we, exactly. we remember the negative. I'm just handing something here. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I saw the puppy dog. I'm like, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. So it's a Boston Terrier named Heaven who is 100% deaf and I love deaf dogs. So there we go. And that's a whole nother story about Boston Terriers that I could bore you with for a very long time. Something tells me you don't know how to tell a boring story, David. Well, bless your heart. Thank you. <laughs> no. So I think to, to go back to your point is, is it's just, we just have to, we have to acknowledge this is who we are and it's okay. And that's why I like, I like the, the more technical term of, of implicit bias. Mm. You know, Cause I think assumption, you know, you know, the acronym, when I make an assumption, mm-hmm. I make a, you know, so just like implicit bias, like, okay, yeah, that's like, it's right. a medical condition. So implicit bias means what? It is impossible for us as human beings. I'm sure there are some elevated human beings to, again, in the absence of any data, to look upon a situation and not begin to make, and I'm going to say a nicer word, deductions about that very rapidly. And as you say, historically, there is a, there is a life-saving component of that. Mm-hmm. You know, big thing you know, is going to eat me. I better make up some assumptions about that. So it's okay. I mean, I just think just once we understand it, so here's shame, I think is the most toxic thing in the world. Mm. And so for those of us who live and I still have terrible days, I still have thoughts of suicide. I'm not, you know, I know how to manage it. They're, they're days as opposed to weeks or months or years. Mm -hmm. I think I try my best and it's difficult to try not to shame myself on, on who I am and how I live. And, and I could easily shame myself for making an assumption. And then when that assumption is completely proven to be irrelevant and 180 degrees off the mark, I can go down into a dark pit rather quickly. If I say, Hey, you know what? One, it's just kind of the way that we human beings are. And two, this goes back to your genius point. You realize I'm not the only one. You know what? Mm. I'm not the only person who assumes things. There is this strength in numbers. It, it normalizes the experience. That's why, you know, there is that great acronym of hope that says hope is hearing other people's experiences. Like, I haven't heard that one. It's just like, wow, this is, and the other, the other acronym is hold on, pain ends. So the real pain, you know, I, I think the whole thing, you know, we, we've all been to weddings, and the second Corinthians of faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. And I'm like, I, you know what? I disagree. Yeah. I just, love's great. It can be fickle. It can hide, play hide and seek. Faith is intimidating like a rock star. But, you know, Charles Schultz said that happiness is like a warm puppy. Well, hope is like a litter of eight-week-old Boston Terrier puppies that just want to jump all over you. Hope demands nothing of you, just wants to be with you. I'm getting off on a tangent. I apologize. It's a really good tangent. So apology rejected. Okay, good. It's a really good tangent. Thank you. On this concept of hope. And we could so have this conversation. So for two minutes, let's go back and forth on hope because I have a real struggle with hope. Okay. I thought that hope was the worst of the evils let loose on the world by Pandora. Mm. Because my experience of hope where the people around me who hoped things would get better and never took an action. Mm. And so that was my experience of hope. And it was a very contentious relationship. Right. Until recently. Well, and and so I get it. I mean, I totally get it. So I I think my belief based on my own experience and then just connecting with some extraordinary souls around the world now, thanks to zoom, I don't, in my opinion, 
and I'm not a medical person in any way, shape or form. I just tell stories usually about animals. Um, people don't die from mental illness. They die from hopelessness. Mm. In the absence of hope, there's no reason to live. And so the opposite side of that coin now is you have hopelessness and you have hopefulness. And I'll go back to the, the stories at the sanctuary. I mean, it was amazing. The transformation that Deanna and I saw over all the years that we did the sanctuary, that animals came in hopeless and then ultimately became hopeful. Just, I mean, it was amazing. And, and I think human beings, sentient beings, four legs, two legs, it really doesn't matter. They, that connection is the vehicle to establish the experience of hope. It just, I mean, you can, you, you, know, you know, there's a distinction between isolation and solitude. One is a choice, one is not. You can go and sit in the mountaintop in the cave and get to a place of Zen and oneness and, and have the experience of hope. I'm sure you can. I think that that's rather rare. For me, I don't have a lot of patience. So I want to connect with an amazing soul like you because now I feel hopeful. I can have this conversation around this heavy topic that life somehow through one great soul and I get to meet another soul, that's all divinity. That's serendipity to me. That's life reminding me, dear son, it's going to be okay. I can't take away all the problems and I can't take away the difficulties. I can't take away the occasional thoughts of suicide, but I can connect you with other people. And in the place of connection, I am hopeful. What a great way to say that. In the place of connection, I am hopeful because yeah. that was your experience on the bridge. Yeah, this, you know, this man, this man leverages these questions, you know, like who, who asked that question? Now, I'm blessed to train hundreds of uh, and, and even thousands of police officers now. And they bring me in to talk about this. And I say, look, this, this is what this is what's used. And, and I just all I'm doing is recounting the story. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then you look at Deanna. Why? Why does a goose not go into that? Which is, is there's nothing more ideal. You know, there was a, a man that <clears throat> took this old dog, and the man was in his 80s. Took it to an animal shelter close by, and what had happened was he came in and he said, "Hey, I found this dog as a stray. I thought I should turn him in." And the staff said, "Oh my gosh, thank you. Could you please fill out some information? We'll take him in the bag. Maybe he's microchipped." And so. The old man wrote his information. The staff member came back and said, we're in luck, he's microchipped, and then compared the information, Jackie, and it matched. Now, if that was me, I would have lost my mind berating the old man as, old man, what if somebody just tossed you aside at the end of your useful days? But this person, and here, this is really important. She didn't do that because she was far more involved than me. She made this slight pivot from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And she said, sir, what's going on? What, what's happening? How can I help you? And at that point, the, this beautiful man just burst into tears. And he said, this is Joshua. I've had Joshua since he was eight weeks old. There is nothing more important in the world than my best friend, but I'm dying. And I'm going into assisted living into a medical facility and I can't take my best friend with me. And so I thought if I said he was a stray, instead of the fact that I had to surrender him, it would give him more time to find a home. And just like Adia, in the moment of the understanding, the staff member said, there's this sanctuary down the hill that takes in old animals and maybe they have room at the end. And I will never forget, Jackie, this exchange of this beautiful man giving me his most, nothing more important in the world than his dog. And he said, please take care of Joshua. And I said, sir, I promise I will. All because somebody made this transition from what's wrong with you to what happened with you. Somebody created the space, thus underscoring what the great Mr. Rogers says that quite frankly, there's no one you can't learn to love once you know their story. So which Mr. Rogers said, there's no one you can't learn to love? Mr. Rogers, so is in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? Okay. Yeah, I just, I happen to know another philosopher who goes by Mr. Rogers. I wanted to make sure which one. So, no, yeah. and it was interesting. That was, I, what the, the longer version of that is, that was actually a quote from a social worker 
that the great Mr. Rogers carried in his wallet for many years to remind, like he needed to be reminded to be a great human being. <laughs> okay, I think you know, you got I, I, maybe that's part of what makes him or made yeah. him a great human being is the fact that he was willing to carry an inspiring quote around. Yeah, him. Good point. You know what? Yeah, I think exactly. So I think, you know, and I try to remember all this, you know, I, I try to look upon a situation to, you know, it, it's, I had a situation just the other day. It was interesting. It just happened on Saturday. So I was in line to get some takeout food <clears throat> and I'd been working doing some manual labor, which I, so I was just kind of dirty and I was tired and you know, a little cranky, a little hangry. So I'm in line with these other people. We're all six feet apart. We got our masks on. And this guy comes screaming to the front of the line and it was the takeout part. I'm like, dude, what's going on? And then not long after I see that his son, who was probably about 10 was on the far extreme of autism like nonverbal and, and I'm like, wow. Okay. So I look at what my initial reaction to, and then once, and I can't even give myself credit for asking the question, but then I look, I watched how gentle he was with his son in which his son was kind of bumping into other people and was trying to go around the back and this beautiful man just managed that whole situation with such grace. It just reminded me, you know what, what I see is not necessarily at a minimum it's not the whole story mm. most often it's not even close to the story he wasn't being irresponsible he wasn't trying to be inconsiderate he has his hands literally full he had three things of the to-go he's son he has children's books and everything else i'm like oh my lord so a lot to handle this, this whole concept of what I see is certainly not the whole story and maybe not even the most important part of the story. Well said. That's, you know what? Yes. That's a huge, huge awareness, David. If we could all walk around with that awareness of what I see is not the whole story and maybe not even the most important part of the story, it would keep us from maybe leaping to those stories well, and to go back to what you and I are saying, the assumptions. And and you know what? And Jackie, I forget it every day because I will forget. And thank goodness. I mean, really, the primary reason that I teach this for me, like, please allow me to remember this set of circumstances. It's like, I know. Sorry. No, no, no. That's okay. No. It's a really open secret because people <laughs> ask me about why do I do the summit why do i do the suicide prevention show the way that i do it where i interview 24 people over two days right. and the answer is because i want to know what they know exactly i don't do this to go change the world people i do this to change me first yep. because who i need to be to do what i'm being called to do in the world isn't gonna happen from where i started no, I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people that, you know, I, I hope the audience gets like one small little snippet of value that I feel like, I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the, the thing that's most difficult for me, even now is in a depressed state is, is an, an acute self-hatred. It's, it's awful. Um, when I describe to people what does depression feel like? I shared with them a very difficult story about one of the Bostons that came to the sanctuary who was used as a bait dog in the dog fighting ring. Wow. And it's an awful story, but unfortunately it's a very accurate analogy to what it's like to be in a fight with depression. And just anytime I can get some, some relief. And when I, when I stand or, have be a virtual in person and share my story and people are receptive. There's one additional layer of shame will just melt away a little bit and think, okay, you know, maybe, maybe there is the possibility that what I'm thinking is wrong on those bad days. Maybe that's, that's not true. So let me like, okay, I feel like I have a purpose. The sanctuary doesn't, run anymore. And so I take the subject of mental health and, and just wrap it in animal stories to try to make it more approachable. It's just my, that's what I do. Well, you've got a lot of stories. I mean, how many years did you run the sanctuary? 
Well, we were involved, Dee and I were involved in animal care and rescue for some 25 years. So I, I regularly use I don't know, 20 or 30. And then what's interesting is it's, it's the first time in my life, Jackie, where I've had the experience that something was effortless. So these stories just come to me, like the story of that idea, you know, and I was doing something and I thought, oh, wow, you know what? That could, I could use it this way. So I don't take any credit for it. I, I am just literally the mouthpiece. I, I may organize it in my head, but you know, and then the, the new ones come up all the time that are just, I love them. I mean, it's just like, I get the sense from you that you're loved. I can't imagine the amount of work that you and your beloved daughter had to, to get all of this, to have it be so seamless and effortless with everything that people don't even know that you've done to support we speakers. That takes a lot of time. It's not like you don't have like a million other things to do, but this is your passion. This is your commitment. This is your gift that changes the world. That's my intention is that this will be something that will change the world. Even if it's one person who stumbles across the YouTube channel of the suicide prevention movement and has all of this content that they can choose from that we are now getting organized into, you know, into sort of subject matter categories that they can stop and pause and listen to something that might give them that pause. They can see a new perspective and it doesn't matter whether they're the one struggling with suicidal thoughts or somebody in their world is struggling with suicidal thoughts or they don't know everything in their life is perfect, but they've got this sense of disquiet. And right now, let's face it. We all have inherited this sense of disquiet about what we can trust, what we can believe, what we can't trust, what we can't believe. Right. most of us may not have had, certainly not at this level, two years ago. Right. No. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 58. And if I think over, you know, born in the 60s and all these different things, I mean, I, I don't, I, I cannot recall a something that, something so unsettling that was happening to the entire world. You know, I always think about the, kind of the, the Orson Welles War of the World type things, just like, it was just kind of freakish that, you know, so I, I, yeah, and it's unsettling and it just goes back to this whole thing about grief. And, you know, I think what I've been taught over these years by amazing people is that for, for the thing I have to do for any, for any of us is that I have to put my self care on a pedestal. There's nothing more important. Mm -hmm. And it is attention to body, mind, and spirit. However you define that. And so it's sleep, diet, exercise, it's group therapy, it's individual therapy, it's being with an incredible psychiatrist who has literally become like a dad to me. It's medication. It's my own spiritual practice. And this, this is my purpose. But here's the other thing. And this is another from Dr. Remen. The other component, and this is going to seem counterintuitive, the other component of self-care that especially now is even more important is grief that we have to grieve to be well. And I, there's this long quote in which she talks about this, that but the bottom line, the takeaway is that you gotta grieve, you have to. And so now I include this in, in the work that I do, it just says, look, you know, and, and part of what happens is our hesitancy to grieve is we, we compare our loss to other people's losses. Oh, we're talking about judgment. Exactly, yeah. and then we say, well, oh. There are children starving in Africa. My loss is is insignificant. Well, you stuff that loss down and you don't process the grief. You, at a minimum, are going to slip into some sort of, at a minimum, situational depression and left unchecked. It's not good. My dad would say it's a bad scene. (laughs) Yeah. Well, your dad would say it's a bad scene. And I'm from my grandpa, the preacher. I think that's where this came from is that has not good written all over it. (laughs) Okay, I will give you credit. That is, my my eldest brother is a a retired two-star general and his boss had this saying when he would be frustrated with people says, you people are stuck on stupid. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing the phrases that we pick up and and (laughs) we kind of laugh, Joe. We we do because that's how we stay sane is when we're willing to laugh. 
and there's where you know these stories um so it's interesting when i my former beloved took thousands of pictures at the sanctuary and so when i tell these animal stories invariably there is a picture so i have a picture of winston on the very first day when i talk about what depression looks and feels like well later i i, sh I have a picture of the same dog that people don't recognize and like this is what mental health looks like and it's winston just this transformation and then tell a funny story that mr man got so bratty that he would make his way out the dog door stop stop halfway front half in front half out the dog door back half in raise his leg pee inside the house and then go outside because he was rather full of himself but just and d always said when they got a little jerky it was a good thing Maybe a little too jerky at times, but that's bratty. You? Okay, oh, gosh, that is a... definitely brat with a capital B. Oh, he was a brat. Oh, All right, I love so that boy. I could listen to your stories forever. Unfortunately, we don't have forever, so I want to make sure it. that we drop the link for your amazing gift to people because this is amazing. Your three simple ways to move people from isolation to connection, which is what I'm assuming we've kind of been talking about, you know, and. This is a great way for people to get a little more of that. And I highly recommend that people Google you and look you up. Google on YouTube. You know, search on YouTube for David Woody Brantley so that they can watch your TEDx talk and be prepared for your next one. I am super excited. I want to continue this conversation. I want you back on the show around the time of your next TEDx talk, okay? Because I want to get the updates. Because okay. I survived my own TEDx experience. I, I know what this is like. <laughs> and yours is coming. So yours is coming out soon, correct? I know it's been done, but they haven't published it yet. And soon is a relative term. So <laughs> we don't have a date. Okay. I still don't have a date. So okay. people can, and actually we, we had to create an opt-in where people could get on a list to get the notice okay. because it was taking so long. Right. And we don't understand the process. You know, it's not my ballpark, Ted's ballpark. So people can opt in. Thank you, Katie, for putting that in there. And the reality is that we'll, mine will be out before you do yours in October. Well, I, I can't wait to, I can't wait. And I know we're running out of time, but let me just again, please say thank you for, yeah. there's a lot of other things that somebody at your talent level and responsibility level and experience could do. And yet you, along with your beloved daughter, yeah, I mean, thank you. I'm embarrassed because it feels really inadequate. But you, you, you are serving people like myself. Um, yeah, so just thank you. You're very, very welcome, David. And thank you for coming on the show and bringing your animals with you. <laughs> you are so welcome. If there's any way I can support you, just let me know.